Primordial Soup Pot. I'm Rustin, and I'm here with my co-host. I'm Aaron. Every couple of weeks, Aaron and I will get together to talk about some wacky and wonderful topics within the world of ecology, evolution, and natural history, and this is our Halloween episode. Yeah, we're doing a follow-up from last year, another uh, spooky season. Yeah, exactly. How was your uh, How was your research for this episode? Yeah, I actually struggled with this one. Did you really? It's not because there wasn't anything. It's because there was too many things. Oh, okay. And uh, some topics I wanted to do, just there's no credible sources. There's no proper research. So I had to just set it aside, really. Okay, that's fair. All right, so uh, what do you got for me this week, then? I think you're up. Oh, I am. I'll get right into it then. So, last year, I decided to talk about vampire bats for the Halloween episode. And I figured that's a well I'd like to return to. Not vampire bats specifically, but bats in general. Because I feel like a lot of the time people don't really think about bats because they're nocturnal. And we have birds in the sky that kind of dominate that sphere for us. Um, But that's kind of a shame because bats are really, really cool. And as far as I'm concerned, I can use our Halloween episodes as an excuse to just talk about bats every year. And I'll probably have enough material for at least several more years. So there's a lot of bats out there. There really are. There really are. Um, This time, though, I won't be discussing the the sanguivorous bats like I did last time. This time I'll be discussing the uh, insectivorous variety of bats specifically their relationship with the moths that many of them hunt. Okay, that's most bats though, right? Most eat bugs? Yeah, a lot. I mean, most of them do. There are the vampire bats like I talked about last year, but then there are also a lot of them that feed on nectar. Mm-hmm. I know at least one that eats frogs slash fish. Right, right, exactly. And then there are others that hunt vertebrate animals, but the vast majority of them feed on flying insects. So, the downside of feeding on insects and being a nocturnal animal is that you have to, you don't really, you aren't able to see your prey as it's moving through the air, right? So, you basically have no way of finding what you want to eat. So, imagine that the lights went out in the grocery store as soon as you walked in and you still had to get everything on your list somehow. You just wouldn't be able to do it. You kind of grope around, see what you get. Right. It'd be rough in the canned food section. Not very distinguishable. You can't see any of the labels, so you think you're getting a can of beans and you wind up with like sardines or something, you know? And you kind of shake it next to you. Yep, that's Chef Boyardee right there. <laughs> right. I know that slosh anywhere. <laughs> but this makes sense, right? Like, we are diurnal animals, and so... Humans, as diurnal animals, rely heavily on sight. Bats, as nocturnal animals, rely on their hearing to find their prey. Specifically, they use echolocation. That is to say, bats are able to send sound waves into their surroundings and hear those waves returning to their ears as they bounce off of things around them, whether those things are trees, buildings, or nice tasty moths. So, it's essentially a kind of airborne sonar that they use to find their prey. So, Through this, they can basically uh, not visualize, but conceptualize their surroundings uh, the way that we would visualize our surroundings. 
using an auditory map instead of a visual one. So it's very effective for them. Bats also use calls to echolocate, which are almost always outside the range of human hearing. Um, the highest pitch humans can hear is around 15 to 17 hertz. It varies from person to person. And actually, babies and younger kids can hear higher frequencies, and those fre the max frequency decreases as we age. But most bat species will produce calls in the range of 20 to 80 hertz. Off topic, but... Don't, like, some police utilize high-pitched noises that only young people can hear to kind of, like, drive them out of an area? I had never heard about that. I mean, this is purely off an episode of Brooklyn Nine-Nine, so I don't know how much credibility there is to it, but the logic seems sound. Are they deter trying to deter young people or dogs? <laughs> Both. Just get them all out of here. <laughs> Pitbull attacks are a real problem. Cover all your bases. Or maybe like an old shopkeeper can play it on his stereo system. Get rid of loiters. Yeah, but what if he's right next to a pet store? That pet store is definitely going out of business. Yeah, it's just bad location, I guess. Yeah, that, that guy is getting sued by the pet store for sure. They can't hear it. How would they know? Well, they'd know because as soon as any dog gets near the store, they just start running away whimpering. Like, that's not a coincidence. Anyway. If you ask me, it's a very good thing we can't hear bats echolocate because that would be a real pain in the ass for us. Because imagine trying to sleep with all those bat screams echoing around you. That sounds like hell. This range of sound above human hearing is also known as ultrasound, which is honestly a really badass name for a spectrum of sound waves, in my opinion. And there, But there are also two groups, two different groups of bats, which are distinguished by their ear structures. The first group is the yin, they And they have a bone which protects the nerves in their ear that sends sound signals to the brain. This is a pretty similar structure to the one found in all other mammals. And they rely on constant frequency sounds for echolocation. But only about 20% of all bats are in this group. The second is the yang, which lacks this bony protection around their nerves in their ears. Which allows the neurons to form all these different kinds of connections with their brain, so the bats can echolocate using a variety of different sound frequencies depending on the species. And this group is the remaining 80% of all bat species. So the presence of these two groups actually leads biologists to think that echolocation evolved at least once in bats. So, in other words, the yin and the yang groups could have evolved echolocation at two different times in two different places which is really interesting to think about. It speaks to how effective echolocation is in a nocturnal hunting environment. Also says how diverse bats are. I don't think people realize they're one of the most diverse groups of mammals. I think they're just behind rodents. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so, I mean, mammals aren't super diverse in the grand scheme of things. Right. Diversity is relative when you're talking about mammals because... The diversity in mammals pales in comparison to, say, the diversity in insects or fish. Fish, worms. There's multiple types of worms. Yeah, can't really compare. Generally speaking, the bigger things are, the less diverse they are. Yeah. And bats are usually small, so a lot of bats. True, true. That rule generally holds up. There are exceptions, of course, but in general, yeah. In biology, there's always an exception. That's the only rule. There's an exception to everything. <laughs> the only rule is there are no universal rules. Anyway, all this discussion of echolocation brings me to the 
well, there's no other word for it, the war between moths and bats. Because as it turns out, when a group undergoes a very large evolutionary jump, like bats did at least once when they involved echolocation, their prey need to come up with a similar kind of jump to stay alive. Otherwise, they die out. In the case of moths, which were being targeted heavily by bats, they evolved certain defenses to the echolocation. The first being that moths have evolved to hear in the same frequency range that bats produce their echolocating calls. So this allows the moths to hear the bats coming and employ evasive maneuvers to avoid capture. In a lot of situations, this just involves the moths just like folding their wings to their sides and just dropping as quickly as possible, which seems a bit unusual, but hey, it's effective. If it works, it works. I guess, but it is kind of weird to think about a moth just like hearing a bat call and then just like immediately dropping to the ground. Honestly, it sounds more like the moth just got really, really scared and forgot how to fly. Well, you know, it either works if you freeze midair and plummet to the ground and the bat doesn't get you. I guess freezing works. Right. I mean, the result is the same, but I'm questioning the cause is all I'm saying. This probably goes beyond the coincidence of just like the moths naturally having this range of hearing because... The hearing range of moths in different areas differs depending on the echolocating frequencies of the bats. So in North America, moths hear in the range of 20 to 50 hertz, while their African counterparts can hear as high as 100 hertz or more. And it should be no surprise to hear that the African bats produce echolocating calls at a higher frequency than the North American bats. In addition to the hearing, though, moths have more active defenses. They can actually produce ultrasonic clicks, which cause the bats to break off their attacks. It's not really known exactly how the clicks deter the bats, but there are a few hypotheses. One being that the clicks indicate that the moths are just not good to eat. So the bats think that the moths are... They think they're too crunchy? Maybe. (laughs) I don't know. They hear all the crinkling noise and thinking, that's not going to be good for my teeth. Yeah, Bats prefer to slurp their moths, I guess. The second hypothesis is that the clicks startle the bats and cause them to break off the attack. So, much like I was thinking with the moths just dropping to the ground and forgetting how to fly, a similar thing happens in this hypothesis with bats being startled by the moths' ultrasonic calls. And then there's the third one, and the one that I personally believe to be most likely which is that the clicks interfere with the bat's ability to receive a return sound while echolocating. That, I think I would agree with that one. Right, right. The first one's a little funky, and the second one, to me, implies that there has to be other animals echolocating, right? Because then the bat might mistake the identity of the moth. I know some birds can do it as well. Well, I mean, the first two seem plausible to me. Like, if you think about it, when visual hunters are tracking prey, a lot of times animals are distinctly uh, are, are very brightly colored visually to indicate that they are not good to eat. Right. So you think about like a monarch caterpillar is very, very distinctly colored. That's to tell predators, hey, you should not eat a caterpillar that looks like this. And at night they bring out tiny little sets of maracas and that's <laughs> to keep the bats away from them. I, I don't buy that one. It's a little well, off to me. Yeah, I mean, I don't think it's as likely as the others, but I think it makes some kind of sense. Like, if it happens in a visual medium, why can't it happen in an auditory medium, you know? I can understand, like, that means palatability of food has to be linked to 
sounds that it produces. And sure. I feel like maybe that's just a stretch too much. Or we need to learn more there. Right, exactly. There is evidence that's needed to support it, but the idea in and itself isn't implausible to me. And as for the second one, I mean, maybe there are other species that echolocate, maybe there aren't, but I don't know. The bats getting startled and breaking off the attack to go find easier prey seems like it's, you know, not again, not implausible. But again, the th- this third one here is probably the mechanism that's actually at work, if I had to guess. What's interesting, though, about these clicks is that in some species of moth, the organ which produces the clicks is near the genitals, which has led some to suggest that the quality of these clicks could be a form of sexual selection within the moths. So in other words, the moths that produce better clicks are also the ones that are more attractive to potential mates. It's a really interesting idea to consider. Like, these clicks could basically be like moth tinder. Oh, that's what you were thinking? I was thinking they had like Prince Alberts with cowbells on them, kind of rattling around there. (laughs) Yeah, how the hell did that particular piercing become known as a Prince Albert? I don't know. And do you want to know though? Like, do do you know? No, I historical. No, it's not. I I don't know. I am wondering while simultaneously not wanting to know the answer. I'm not entirely sure who Prince Albert was, and I don't know how he feels about that i am assuming a dead member of the british royal family i was thinking like a musical artist or maybe it was just some dude named albert who became a prince because he made up this one particular kind of piercing maybe he made a lot of money decided it what the sounds heck? more like a pimp than a royal family member so as the moths have evolved these defenses the bats have evolved counterattacks or countermeasures to those defenses one is Quite simply, just to eat something else. You know, there's a lot of other insects and food available. Why waste time on moths that are clicking at you? Um, you know, sometimes it's just best to cut your losses. And there are species that have done that, that have echolocating calls, just pretty basic ones in frequencies that moths can hear. And as a result, they don't really eat a lot of moths. You know, they focus on flowers or less dangerous insects. So there has to be a correlation between moth clicking and something unpalatable, like a poison or spines, or maybe they're too big. That's the kind of evidence I would want to see to back up the first theory. As far as I know, that evidence doesn't exist. I just thought it was an interesting hypothesis to consider because it really helps to underscore the idea that bats are using hearing the same way that we would use sight. Because if species can use a visual appearance to indicate unpalatability, then it stands to reason that a species that exists in a world where hearing is the primary sense would use auditory means to communicate the same thing that other species, other prey animals communicate visually. Now, I get the how it could work, but to me, it's I see a poison dart frog, I see bright colors, I go, poison. I know that. That means there has to be a sound for being unpleasant, and that sound has to mean something. So we we usually bright or disruptive colors means poison or venom. It's bad for one reason or another. If you're going to do the same thing for sound, I want to know why. Right. We just don't know why. There isn't the same level of evidence. Regardless, for species that actually do still hunt the moths, Um, they've found ways to solve the puzzle that the moths have created. One way is to change the frequency at which the calls are produced. 
So if moths are hearing, say, in the range of 50 to 80 hertz, then the bats might produce calls at around 12 hertz or even as high as 200 hertz. The idea there is that the bats are producing calls that the moths can't hear, of course. Although we don't necessarily know that this is the exact mechanism that is at play because there isn't definitive evidence that the moths cannot hear the calls that are made at these frequencies. There's this correlation that exists where bats pr which produce calls at really high or low frequencies tend to feed exclusively on moths, but we don't know that the moths can't hear in those frequency ranges, and so therefore we can't definitively say that the bats are producing calls in those frequency ranges to confuse or um, mask their appearance from the moths. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I get you. Aside from that, another way that some another way that some bats get around the moth defenses is to modulate or change the frequency of their call, um, which some of the Yang bat species do. And this is why I brought that up because as a, a bat, if you're able to produce calls that have a really like unusual frequency range um, or even change frequency throughout the call, you have to have a pretty unusual neuron structure in your ear to be able to actually process the return signal that you're getting. Otherwise, it's just kind of a jumble of mess and you're not going to be able to interpret it. So the fact that some bat species have evolved to really produce all these different elaborate uh, connections within the neurons in their ears really helps some of those species get past uh, the moth defenses and actually hunt moths more effectively. But then the other thing that some bats do is they actually produce really low intensity calls. So instead of making the call like a higher or lower pitch, they would simply make the call quieter. So the moths can't hear it. And so the moths can't hear the bat coming. There are really like a lot of different things that bats have evolved to do throughout the world to combat these moth defenses and different things that moths have done throughout the world to avoid being echolocated by bats. But What's really fascinating about this whole situation is that there are different species which seem to be kind of in different stages of this arms race. So some bats feed exclusively on moths, but produce calls in a range that the moths can hear. While in other areas, the bats have changed their calls to adapt to the moths' defenses. So in some areas, the moths are ahead, and in some areas, the bats are ahead. So basically, this is like an ongoing evolutionary war that's occurring every night throughout most of the world really so yeah that's my piece yeah that's really cool i do love a good evolutionary arms race just goes to show you that bats are really really fascinating i still personally i like the last hypothesis where the clicks are disruptive to the echolocation yeah yeah because that's on par with if you're being chased by a lion you throw a flashbang at it it's gonna it's gonna disrupt <laughs> the lion it's definitely the most badass of the three hypotheses. Like, it makes it sound like the moths have, like, some kind of anti-aircraft weaponry that they're just firing back at the bats. Or some kind of, you know, sonar jamming technology. I don't know if you recall this. Uh, it was in animal behavior class. But I remember the professor said, I don't know if it was moths or another insect, but there are some that if you jingle your keys it can sometimes be the right frequency where it sounds like a bat and you'll see a swarm of them and they'll all dive bomb at once. And you can try it out near lights outside your house at night when they congregate. 
I think it might have been Lace Wings, actually. I don't remember that. Worth a try. Yeah, for sure. If you want a whole bunch of a whole bunch of lace wings and or moths around you, you just put out a little pan and shake, and there you go. Don't know what you do with them, but you got them. A nice midnight snack, perhaps. Mm, yummy. <laughs> Unless they're clicking, in which case they that could indicate that they're poisonous. Maybe they're a little crunchy, wrong texture. The bats are real snobbish about their food. Yeah. Or maybe they're doing like a little fake cough. And it's like, oh, you sure you want to eat me, bud? Ah, I've had this flu. I mean, I think it's the flu. The, the doctor <laughs> says it might be some sort of parasite. I've just been coughing all week. My brother, on the other hand, he's doing just fine. Well, that guy, look at him. That that guy's doing great. He's not clicking at all. You're definitely not going to get sick from him. Anyway, yeah, that's my piece on bats for the second year in a row. Yeah, really cool. It's a good thing to follow up with. For sure. I think I'll make it a tradition. I'll just talk about bats every Halloween. Anyway, so what have you got for me? Okay, so this one was a bit of a struggle for me. Last year, I did the Beast of Jevedon, and I really like the idea of old legends and your sort of stereotypical monster that attacks people, and then, you know, bringing it to the light with actual realism, actual science. True. Although I will say, I will say that that particular bit made us liars a little bit because we are supposed to be talking about ecology, evolution, and natural history. Okay, we've bent that rule many times. We have, but we've done straight up history episodes before. None quite so much as in that particular. No, you did an entire Antarctic expedition. Yeah, when I talked about the discoveries that they had made about the ecology of the Antarctic. Yeah, but that was like a footnote in the actual journey itself. That was the fun bit. Okay, but in the Beast in the beast of Jemondon bit, you talked more about the myth that people created around the beast more than what it actually was. I talked about what it could have been. Yeah, one of and one of those explanations was a big scaly dragon. No, <laughs> again, that was... It, People, they didn't know what things looked like. A lot of them were illiterate. You know, they're just passing on word of mouth what this thing was. Oh, so you're blaming the education system now. (laughs) I mean, what, it was early 1700s France? Yeah, it wasn't great. (sighs) All right, regardless, carry on. Okay, so... This year, I I want to do something similar. A monster that has attacked humanity. And it was a struggle. There's there's not a lot of sources, a lot of credibility to this stuff. But I did find one that I think we can all agree is definitely a monster, just a different variety. And this is one that has plagued humanity for a surprisingly long time. So I'm going to be talking about the guinea worm. Have you heard of this? No. Okay. So this is your disclaimer. This is a human parasite. If this sort of topic makes you squeamish, you should you should skip this. It's going to be a little gross. All right. Carry on. So, guinea worm has a couple different names. There's sometimes referenced as dragon worms or fiery serpents. I'll get more on that later. Why weren't why weren't those the original names? Those are so much cooler than guinea worm. Uh, those are the older names for it. Kind of got phased out. Why? Why did we keep those around? Hey, you'll like the scientific name, though, because that is 
Draculus Medinensis, which roughly translates to the little dragon from Medina. Okay, so they, they kept the dragon aspect to it. Uh, Medina is a region in modern-day Saudi Arabia. I'm just going to call it the Guinea Worm, keep things simple, and it's named after the Guinea region of Western Africa, where uh, it can it was found in high prevalence. All right, just know that throughout this bit, whenever you talk about these worms, I'm just going to be imagining a little baby earthworm breathing fire. Mm-hmm. It's got little wings and flies around you. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to break my bit down into three parts. The first will be the biology and ecology of the worm itself. The second will be kind of the myth behind the worm and its role in ancient history, which that's the bit I really like for Halloween. That's the the monster status to it. And the last will be its current status in the modern era. Okay. So, guinea worms. These guys are nematodes, which is a very diverse phylum of worms. Heads up, there's many different groups of animals that we call worms, which basically just no eyes, legs, or bones. That's kind of a worm. Not all worms are closely related at all. Yeah, it's it's interesting how we tend to how we tend to lack distinction in our classifications of animals that look less like that look less and less like we do. Like the further something is from a human, the more we tend to just kind of lump things together. You know what I mean? Now I'll admit that, but in the case of worms, if you're not someone who's really invested in them, they do all look the same to an extent, especially if they're small. It's right. hard to tell. Right, right, right. That, but that's kind of my point, though, is that because they're so different, is because they're so different from us, they kind of tend to all look the same. Like I'm assuming to these worms that they all don't look the same to each other. Or I don't know if I don't think they have eyes, so <laughs> they probably look all the same to them too. All right, but you get my point. Yeah, I get your point. So these guys are nematodes, very diverse phylum of worms. You can find detritivores, herbivores, predators, and yes, there are plenty of parasites. These worms resemble long, thin, white strings. They're not very notable in their appearance. If you just looked at one, you might not even know what it was. Females can get about 31 inches or 80 centimeters. White males only get just over an inch or about four centimeters long. And guinea worms, like many parasites, actually have a variety of hosts that they go through to complete the life cycle. That sounds exhausting. It's gotta be. Some of these are, I don't even know if you looked at them, some of these are crazy. Yeah, yeah, I mean... Like, you gotta pass through three or four different beings before you end up in the, the end zone, the end goal, where you want to be. Yeah, that's like Every time you change schools, you go to school in a different state. It's like a school in a different country. All right, yeah, probably a different country. It's <laughs> like exchanging a continent every semester. It's like growing up with a parent in the military. Oh, yeah. I guess so. <laughs> That's fairly accurate. Anyways, uh, so they start off as small larvae living in freshwater. These larvae are often eaten by copepods, which are a small crustacean that usually aren't visible to the human eye. These larvae survive in the digestive tract of the copepods and develop. And then these infected copepods are ingested usually when a larger animal drinks water. They're, it's not a predator of the copepod. It's just they're really small. They get in there. The copepods die in the stomach, but the larvae are released. From there, the larvae will develop and they'll work their way down the digestive tract, 
Eventually, they will exit the small intestine to the retroperitoneum space, which is kind of like the gap between the organs and the lining that holds them in place. Okay. During this process, the males will meet with mate with the females and die. That's why the males don't get that big. They just there to breed and that's it. The anglerfish approach. Females continue to grow over the span of 60 to 90 days. During this time, they'll also migrate slowly through subcutaneous tissue and muscle down the leg. Okay. This will cause an intense burning-like irritation, hence the fiery serpent name. And usually, instinctively, someone will dip their leg in the water. Now, as this happens, the females will emerge from the skin in the form of a blister. They'll release a fluid that triggers an immune response and causes the blister to form. And then, when you have the person that puts their leg in the water, the females will kind of poke out a little bit, release the eggs, and the cycle continues. And then what happens to the female that's still in the leg? So I'll get to that, but you're not going to like it. All right. But <laughs> b- before we get to that, what happens if if the copepod is ingested by an, a natural predator of copepods? So that's also very important, and that will come up again at the end. Okay. You asked two of the most important questions right off the bat. Good to know I'm being a good co-host. <laughs> Carry on. So this this whole cycle can actually last over a year. So this is not quick by any means. So there's definitely some seasonality to these worms. It's usually actually in the dry seasons, not the wet seasons, because the dry seasons is when everyone will congregate around one water source, which is usually more stagnant. So you'll have less fish, but you'll have more tiny invertebrates like the copepods. Okay, that makes sense. And these worms can have a wide variety of hosts. Most of these are mammals. Humans, obviously, the main one. Cats and dogs are some bigger ones, too, due to their tendency to live close to each other. But they've also been documented in frogs, ferrets, and baboons, so they're not super picky. But most of the time, they target humans. Uh, Yes, but it could also be that's when we notice it, because it's us. Okay. So they could just be generalists that happen to infect humans some of the time. Uh, Well, I think with humans, because we have to be close to water and you'll have villages built around like a small reservoir. That's kind of why they've, I don't want to say co-evolved with humans. I don't know if that was specifically meant for humans or if that behavior just amplified their ability to parasitize us. But when you have a community built around a small water source, that's when the worms do really well. It's not big lakes or fast-flowing waters. You won't find them there. Right, right. Okay. So is there any evidence that the worms have kind of maybe specialized, started to specialize in humans a little bit as humans' populations have increased and we've congregated more around these water sources? I don't know if there's evidence that they've specialized. A lot of the research into these worms is more so in the pathology route in treating them. Makes sense. And not, uh, yeah, it makes total sense. They're still around today. Yeah, I don't know. I will say that there are a lot of worms like this, and these are just the ones that happen to infect people. There's quite a few that can infect a number of different species. Okay. So they can cover. Pretty much any vertebrate, reptiles, amphibians, birds, mammals, fish, 
spread across the different species, there's one for everything. Okay. Okay, I got you. Okay. So, if you are infected by a guinea worm, you won't really know for a whole year. It's a rough bit. You have no symptoms. Even though it's inside you, it's not really bothering you. You can live your life completely unaware that you're infected only until a couple days before the worm emerges. When it does, it's usually around the foot or the ankle. So the worm is essentially stretched along the entire length of your leg, Hmm. which is a very unpleasant feeling. And it's only when they're ready to emerge that you actually start getting mild symptoms like a fever, swelling, and pain. But when they finally emerge the legs, it's very painful. And here's the sad thing. The only way to remove the worm is to slowly pull it out. Oh, excellent. Yeah. That sounds wonderful. It's, I mean, it's called Fiery Serpent for a reason. It's very painful. That's the worst part. The worm itself isn't lethal. Rare cases, you might see permanent joint damage or even partial paralysis in the limb. But the worm pretty much doesn't kill you. You're just in agonizing pain until it comes out. The only way to pull it out is to slowly wrap it around a piece of gauze or wood and reel it in a little more day by day. Okay, so they're... They're not. They're basically just like the Jared Leto Joker. They're they're not going to kill you. They're just going to hurt you really, really bad. Okay. I had no idea where you're going at, at the start of that. Yeah, that could have gone to a really bad place. Yeah. Jared Leto's full of worms. <laughs> you know that wouldn't surprise me. That's why you boil always boil your water. So you have to reel it out a little day by day, like winding a spool of thread. This process can take days, weeks, or even months, depending on the length of the worm. I read one paper that said you can only do one to two centimeters per day. And this worm can get up to a meter. Whoa. Yeah, that that can suck. And you have to keep constant tension, but not too much or you'll break it off and the worm will die and then cause an infection. So you can look up treatments nowadays, and what they do is they usually have a piece of gauze They'll kind of wrap the worm out and then sort of cover it up. And then the next day, reel it in a little more and then repeat. Hmm. And this is the only treatment for the worms. You can apply antibacterial ointments to prevent infection of the wounds. You can take painkillers or anti-inflammatory drugs. There's no vaccine. There's no cure for the worm. Nothing. Well, I mean, yeah, it makes sense that there's no vaccine for the worm, like... What, are you just going to get, like, a shot of, like, little bits of worm in your arm? Okay, you say that, but if when you go on Google, there's a surprising amount of articles saying, no, there is no vaccine for this worm. So not everyone has a full understanding of how they work. Okay, that's fair. Yeah, if anything, you do not want to put little bits of worm in, in your body. Right, but... After COVID, people probably should have a more thorough understanding of how vaccines work. I thought you were going to say they probably should put little bits of worms in their body. <laughs> yeah, you'd think. Only if they're baby birds. Yeah, that's the one exception. Then it's okay. Okay, so the reason that these worms are so detrimental, besides the pain aspect that can take months sometimes, is because you can't work. This is the real killer. It's not the worm. It's the inability to work, especially because this often hits really poor communities. Yeah. So if you're infected, you can't provide for your family. You 
often can't move around without a lot of pain. So one study found that infected mothers found it difficult to care for their families at all, couldn't even move around. They couldn't cook, clean, or care for their kids efficiently. Yeah. And parents who are working usually can't go to work in this condition. It's just too agonizing. So that's leading to a total loss of income in that family, not to mention money spent on treatments for the worm. In some scenarios, families have to send their children off to work to provide for the families, and that takes time away from their education. So this is really crippling in poor communities. And it can have massive impacts, especially because there's a kind of seasonality to it. It can hit an entire community all at once. Oh, my God. Yeah, they literally reshape the economy. And I don't even want to have to go into the stress that one of these worms would put on a young child. That's... It's a whole other thing. No, no, no. Let's not go there. Yeah. In some regions, the worm is known as the disease of the empty granary, specifically because of the economic impacts of the worm. It was much better to visualize these worms as little fryer-breathing winged creatures. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's more palatable. No, they're just a, really just a string. That's it. Yeah. I mean, as soon as you pull it out, you could kick its ass. I mean, <laughs> you, you could take it one-on-one. Probably, yeah. I don't know. That's got to be therapeutic for someone when it's finally out of them. I would want to stomp on it. Shows that I came out on top in the end. Right. I'd want to like whip it against a wall until it's like little tiny pieces everywhere. (laughs) Just don't get one in your mouth. So you may think this is an issue reserved for poor or third world countries. There was once a time where this issue was much bigger. These are this is kind of one of those forgotten things that shaped history. Because historically, they're widespread across Africa, the Middle East, and Asia. They had an absolutely massive range. Remember how I told you you had to slowly roll the worm out on a spool? Mm -hmm. This is referenced in ancient Egyptian texts dating back to 1550 BC. Really? Yeah. It it goes deeper than this. In the Bible, Numbers 21.6 reference a plague of venomous snakes that bites the Israelites. That's the modern translation. The older translation actually calls them fiery serpents instead. So it's thought that this might actually have been the guinea worms, especially because they would have been around the Red Sea at the time, and they were native there. So you're saying that these worms are so terrible that they were like a punishment from Old Testament God? Yes. I mean, does the spool thing not put it in perspective to you? Yeah, these are agonizing. And he was really wrathful, so (laughs) that's saying a lot. So you have more texts. 700 BC, the city of Nineveh referenced strange infections in the legs of people. Muslim pilgrims would be infected when they passed through Medina, like I mentioned, which led to its scientific name. You can find Persian engravings of these worms being pulled. There's been calcified worms found in mummies 3,000 years old. Lots of medical texts from countless different countries and cultures reference this worm. Whoa. It is crazy. You can even find statues, some more modern, of like European explorers, and they will have a string hanging out of their thigh, and it's the worm. And like I said, it had larger impacts on drier regions. It seems counterintuitive, but that means more people congregate around one body of water 
especially when it's getting low and, you know, if everyone's bathing in it or washing their feet off. Right. Yeah, it becomes infected and then everyone gets it because they're all using the same water source and that makes sense. So this is probably the most influential piece of history from the worm, although it's debated a little bit. Have you heard of the Rod of Asclepius? No. Okay, you probably would recognize the symbol. It's a staff, you and it has a snake going around it, and it's used in a lot of hospitals or medical schools. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so there's another one. Uh, I forget the name of that, which is a rod with wings and two snakes going around it. This is actually a different symbol, but they kind of get mixed together. Mm-hmm. But no, I'm talking about the rod with a little poorly drawn snake going around it. It's thought that this might actually reference the spool that pulls out the worm. Really? Like I said, it's debated because there's also a Greek myth aspect to it. But given how prevalent these worms are, I do think it's possible that they had an influence on the design. That's crazy. Yeah, yeah. It's one of those things that everyone sort of forgets about. No one knows the origin, but the derived symbol of it that remains that symbols everywhere well i mean i i completely understand why people would want to forget about that i will say there are no references to the worm from ancient greece that we know of but it's so prevalent and it was widespread in nearby regions i think it's safe to say the worms might have had an influence i'm chalking it up as a strong maybe so many of, I mean, so much of our culture originates from ancient Greece in one way or another. So you'd think that there would be more evidence of it being in ancient Greece if it was really prevalent there, right? Well, that's true. But this worm is very forgotten and it's been referenced in so many other different cultures that I think it's just one of those things that just we collectively forgot about. I mean, I. I didn't know about it growing up. If you showed me this worm, I would just think it's a string. Aaron, of course you didn't know about it growing up. If you knew about it growing up, you wouldn't have been able to sleep for two months. <laughs> no, I've, oh my god. Yeah, I'd be checking my ankle every other day. Is that a mosquito bite? Or is that a worm coming out there? Oh, that give me so much anxiety. Yeah. Maybe it's a good yeah. thing people forgot about it. In which case, my bad, everyone. <laughs> Yeah, I hope you're not listening to this before going to bed or getting in the pool. (laughs) Yeah, don't get in the pool. (laughs) Don't spread it to everyone else. Make sure it's very well chlorinated. Yeah, absolutely. So, like I said, countless paintings and references to these worms if you look for them. And over the years, as science has advanced, our understanding of the worm's biology improved. It was very much a piecewise thing, a lot of different people involved. But it was by the 1870s, the scientists really fully understood, not fully, they knew enough about the worm's life cycle and intermediate host. They knew about the copepods, they knew about the drinking of the water. But another thing is advancements in aqueducts and water sanitation were enough to reduce the worm's range greatly. So that really restricted it. That that was a big killer for it. If you ask me, that's like the, one of the the complete, completely unsung, like miracles of humanity in the last like two centuries, is 
are advances in water sanitation and sewage systems. I can't even argue with that. No, that's absolutely right. When you think about the impact that that has had on society in terms of our access to clean drinking water and the reduction in the prevalence of diseases and parasites like these worms that resulted from that, it's insane and even more insane when you consider how little we know about it and how little it's talked about. It was definitely one of those things where I I don't think advancements in water sanitation was because of this worm because there's so many issues with unclean water but once that came around the worm it really reduced in a lot of areas but not all of them yeah cholera probably also played a role it probably a bigger role i'll I'll give you that but i don't think we'll ever fully know how prevalent the worm was because once you got these clean water it's just not talked about Now, this brings me to the final piece of my topic, and that's the eradication effort. So even though the range of this worm was reduced, by 1986, there were still about 3.5 million cases a year, which is a lot more than I would have thought, because we're in the modern era of things. This was mainly spread across Africa, but it was also in Yemen and Pakistan as well. And the eradication effort was led by a combination of the CDC and the Carter Foundation, as in Jimmy Carter former U.S. president. Good for him. So unlike most disease eradication, like I mentioned, there's no vaccine for this. There's no antibiotic for this. So because this requires several hosts, you can just cut it off from reaching people, and that's the end of the cycle. So this was really only an issue with infrastructure and education. Huh. Okay. So the first bit was they had to teach people in these regions about the worm's life cycle. So, obviously, if you have that worm coming out of you, don't go in the drinking water. Stay out of it. Put your foot in a bucket of water instead. The worm will start to come out, and then you can begin the process of removing it. It's got to be really disappointing for the worm, though, you know? You're expecting (laughs) to come out in the pond, and instead you wind up in a bucket. Especially, It's a whole year effort to get down the leg, out the ankle. You pop out and go, oh, dang it. Anyways, so simple as educating people about the worms, their life cycle, where they come from, etc. You can greatly reduce their numbers by preventing them from passing the larva back into the drinking water. Another aspect was water treatment. It's obviously chlorination of drinking water, uh, anti-parasitic drugs to treat the water. Hell, even just boiling the water will do. Establishing safe wells and springs to access water from and keep clean plays a huge role in reducing their numbers. In some particularly poor areas where they might not have that, there's actually nets and filters that can be used to actually filter out the copepods from the water, and that will prevent the water from being contaminated. You should still probably boil it afterwards, but just, you know, those two little steps right there is enough to give you clean drinking water. Huh. Interesting. So over the years, the process has not been perfect. There's been a number of hiccups, like wars, political disputes, but the success overall has been great. So 1986, 3.5 million cases in 21 countries. Just the next year, there were less than a million cases in only 18 countries. Oh, wow. That's just one year. They dropped rapidly, almost logarithmically. By the early 2000s, there were about 60,000 cases, and the worm was completely eradicated in Asia. 
By the 2010s, there were less than 1,000 cases. And by the 2020s, there were less than 50 cases a year. Hell yeah. Yeah, as of 2022, there were only 13 cases. Currently, I think it might be a little bit disputed, the worm can only be found in South Sudan, Mali, Ethiopia, Chad, and Angola. Angola and Cameroon, sorry. There might be some issues with reporting, but overall, 99% of the worms have been eradicated. Awesome. Yeah, President Jimmy Carter, who's still alive at the time of this recording, at 99 years old, has said it in the past that he hopes the disease will be fully eradicated in his lifetime. I believe in 2023, there might have only been 10 or so cases as of now. So, still on the decline. Yeah, makes me proud of humanity. Yeah, this is very much an achievement. It's a good thing all around. This is one extinction I can get behind. I'm okay with losing this one. You got the air in approval. This animal can go. Mine too, so you have the primordial <laughs> soup pot stamp of <laughs> approval. You give Extinct this one. Take it out. Yeah, we're not giving it endangered status or nothing. Nope. But there is one little hiccup in this. Actually, it's kind of a major issue, and that's dogs. Uh... Yeah, so remember how you talked about other hosts earlier? It wasn't discovered until recently. This is probably in the last 10 years or so that dogs can be infected with guinea worms. Mm. And they can be infected through the standard method of drinking water with infected copepods in it. But they also have an additional route, possibly, through fish and frogs. So frogs have been documented to be infected with the worm. That's also very recent. And if a dog might eat the frog, it might actually pass into the dog. So it passed through again. Fish don't seem to actually be infected with the parasites. It seems more likely that the fish ate the copepods and the copepods are just in the digestive tract, but they're not infecting the fish itself. And then when the dog eats the fish or if the dog eats fish scraps at a market, then the worm might be passed to them. So one country that was really good at monitoring monitoring this is Chad, which does still have the worm today. However, they had 10 years where they had no reported cases of the worms, and then it reappeared again. So obviously, even though not a lot reappeared, there's only a handful of cases, that's a cause for concern. Where did this come from? And then it was discovered dogs. So the dog, it gets to the dogs, and it comes out their leg just like it would a person. So unfortunately, as long as dogs have the parasite, it could spread back to humans Not at any moment, but it could work its way back in. While the number of human cases are low, there's been at least a thousand cases of dog in dogs in recent years. Dogs are known as something called a reservoir species, which means that the pathogen or disease can kind of build up in them, remain there, and then spread back to people. So it doesn't go away. It just kind of moves for a bit, takes a semester abroad, And then comes back. Right. It's kind of like the safe place in tag. Just kind of hangs out there for a while and then moves back out into the open. Is that a movie reference or just the game of tag? The game of tag. You had a safe space in tag? Yeah. Ours was just like bathroom break. What kind of tag has a safe space? It defeats the purpose. Why would you leave it? You leave it because there's a time limit. So you 
you, you get there and you say, okay, you have 10 seconds to stay there. To, you know, take a break, get some water. Because otherwise the game just ends really quickly. You got to start all over. Becomes more strategic if you got a safe place. Well, is a tag infinite? You touch one person, they're it. Depends on the kind of tag you're playing. You know what? You got me there. I am not well versed in all the variations of tag. I'll give you that one. Sounds like your elementary school experience was lacking. I guess so. So, like I said, the parasite is still in dogs. However, with close monitoring, I do believe this problem can be solved because pretty much every technique that was used to eradicate the disease in people is also applicable to dogs. Give the dogs clean water. If you provide water from them at home, they're not going to go out and drink in these dirty, contaminated water sources. Also, keep them closer to home so they don't roam around and possibly spread it more. And monitor what they eat. Like I said, there's the possible fish or amphibian route of transmission. Just, you know, make sure they don't eat those or eat very little or cook it for them. Yeah. And for God's sakes, make sure you keep the dog away from the fish tank. Yeah, you know, we don't need to go again. You don't want them hopping in there. Actually, one of the best ways to reduce transmission is just to give them clean water. If you just give them water at home, they're not going to go out and drink from contaminated water sources. And one study found that most of the dog's infections could actually be traced back to only a couple of ponds. So even then, treating them with tamephos, which is a larvicide at the right time of year, you just treat it directly into the pond, could kill off all the larvae and potentially just break the cycle there. So there is a minor setback with the worms being found in dogs, but as monitoring improves, I do believe this worm will be eradicated. I also believe this seemingly sharp increase in dog cases is also just because they started monitoring dogs. So they were just aware of the issue. Maybe it's not that the issue is getting worse. I This is a minor setback in the grand scheme of things. So it has to be solved to fully eradicate it. But there is a light at the end of the tunnel. It's slowly growing brighter. And that's my piece. I I consider it a monster of sorts. You would. Yeah, there are some there are definitely horror movies about parasites. Although yeah, it's very much a real world horror, not so much a fictional one. Yeah, it's a I can say if you're listening to this podcast, you don't have to worry about this. Just don't don't drink from ponds. I mean, only a handful of people get in a year. It's on its way out. There's there's hope to be had. And I believe that would make it the second disease to be eradicated by humans. The first one would be smallpox. I, I guess I got to do something else for dinner besides making cold pond soup. <laughs> I thought you were saying having spaghetti. <laughs> well, no, because I'd boil the water for that. And you slowly reel it around the fork <laughs> to eat it. Why did you have to ruin Italian food for me like that? <laughs> anyway, moving on. What are you thinking about for our next episode? Uh, what do you have in mind? I picked the... I think I picked the last two here, so... Well... Um, what if we did a... What if we did a fall-themed episode instead of a, a Halloween-themed episode? 
I feel like we should have done fall first. Not necessarily, because like Thanksgiving is the holiday where we celebrate like the fall and the harvest, and that comes after Halloween. So this ep- this episode will come out between this next episode will come out between Halloween and Thanksgiving. So yeah, it'd be hard to do a Thanksgiving episode. Yeah, yeah, it would. So fall. Yeah, why not? I think we can make some work. All right, cool. Sounds good to me. You want to take us out? Yep. If you enjoyed this episode, please give us a follow and review on your podcast app of choice. If you have a suggestion for a future episode, you can contact us at theprimordialsouppot at gmail.com or on x at souppotpodcast. All right, sounds good. And until next time, I'm Rustin. And I'm Aaron. See ya.